Well, good morning. Man, D now 2017. Love Austin. I didn't even have to go and I got the shirt. So one of the things that we are taught in scriptures is when we look at things is how do we judge if it's working or not? And one of the things we've talked about here as a church uh, in recent years is that we don't want to talk about it based on how things feel. It feels like things are going well. I feel like things in the ministry are going well. doesn't matter. We talk about fruit. What's the fruit we're seeing? That's how the Bible says that we judge things. And there's a lot of good fruit that's going on. But this, this is awesome. Awesome fruit. Tripled in size over the last few years, what you guys are doing, and seeking to be a love letter from God to the city of Austin. Thank you for teaching us as a church how to do that. Okay? So it's fantastic. Today we're going to be continuing on with our examination of the life of Joseph, a story of redemption. And we're going to be looking at uh, some more verses from chapter 37 in Joseph's early life. And we're going to bring those verses up here now. Oh. <laughs> Let's not think we got too much good fruit going on. <laughs> Well-oiled machine, baby. Jacob settled in the land where his father had lived as an alien, the land of Canaan. And this is the story of the family of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was shepherding the flock with his brothers. He was a helper to the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, the father's wives. And Joseph, this is, this is last week's scripture. Does anybody have a Bible? Why don't we all listen now to God's word to us today? Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he answered, Here I am. They saw him from a distance. They saw Joseph, his brothers did. And before he came near to them, they conspired to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we shall say that a wild animal has devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he delivered him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but lay no hand on him, that he might rescue him out of the hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the long robe with sleeves that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. And the pit was empty, and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels carrying gum, balm, and resin on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then, Joseph said, then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay hand, our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. 
When some Midianite trainers came by, they drew Joseph up, lifting him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us today, no matter who we are or how we walk in here, that you would mold and shape and guide us and the journeys that we are on. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we saw last week, if you were here, in the beginning of the story of Joseph, that Joseph is a self-centered, arrogant young guy. He's a self-centered, arrogant, naive guy who believes that his brothers are going to be excited because he has dreams that they're going to bow down and worship him. And one of the things that Joseph uh, has to learn in this is, is a lesson you and I do, which is, how are people going to respond in that? And people don't like him. His brothers don't like him. And so even though we can understand why they don't like him, you and I should be horrified at what they do to him here. They throw him into a pit. They say they're going to kill him. Then they throw him in a pit and sell him as a slave so they can earn some money off of it. And you have to appreciate they're not just doing this to him, but they're doing it to his dad. Because this isn't a one-time event. They make profit off selling their brother as a slave, and then they spend years all lying to their father about it, all making their father believe that Joseph has died. And letting their father suffer the agony of that year after year after year. This is a horrible thing that they do. It is an awful thing that they do. And the question that I would like you and I to consider today is while we may not know what it's like to have our siblings, you might think you know, what it's like when they want to kill you, or what it's like to have them betray you and even sell you into slavery, I want us to consider what is it like and how do you and I live when our lives are falling apart? When the things in school, when the things at our work, when the things that we are experiencing just sort of come crashing down around us and it's like everything in our world has been overturned. How do we live in the midst of suffering and pain? And if you have never had that happen in your life, it will happen someday, probably soon. It happens to us as people, it happens in our families, it happens in our country over time, it happens in our world at different times. As individuals and as a people, we experience times when you're going, what is happening here? How is this possible? And where do we go? How do you and I live in that space? How do we do that? Well, what I want you to hear today is that if you're in that space individually, and many of us are, if you see that in our world, if you see that in our country, if you're in that spot where it's like life just feels like it's crashing in on us and I don't know what to do about that, and I don't know how to keep going. I want to invite us today to consider that through the story of Joseph and through the story of our faith that we are called to be people who can endure suffering because there is hope. There is hope. There is hope that the struggles and the difficulty and the pain and the loneliness and the betraying and the lies and the you being left out and everything that can happen in our world that is real and that is true and that is hard, that we can be a people who can allow ourselves to be sad and broken and devastated and hurting, but we do not have to give in to despair. And we don't have to give in to despair for several different reasons. But the first thing that I want you to hear about is because we are reminded in the story of Joseph, and we were reminded in all of our own stories, including the story of our Savior, who was not excluded from suffering and hard times, that every day that we go through it, there is the promise of a new day that will rise. That Joseph, even though he's sold here into slavery, 
in Egypt, that that's not how he dies. That's not the end of his story, but that God brings new life. God will bring you new opportunities. God will bring new chances into your life. And this is something that can give you hope, even as things are painful. We see that as Christians in the cross. We, many of you might wear a cross around your neck, or you see him at church, or you see him uh, in your home, and the cross is a symbol of that. It says that God himself didn't endure suffering. That he endured suffering, that he wasn't exempt from it. The promise of faith isn't saying if you're a good enough person and you follow enough rules and you go to youth group and you go to church and you attend Bible study and you do all of this stuff, then nothing bad will ever happen to you. But that Jesus himself had to suffer, that Jesus himself went to the cross, and we wear these crosses and we keep them in our churches and our homes as a sign of hope, not because it says suffering doesn't happen, but because it says that suffering wasn't the end of his story. That suffering is redeemed. That God takes brokenness and takes pain and takes sadness and takes loneliness and turns it into new life. And that you and I can always sit in that going, I don't know what God's going to do with this, but something good is going to happen. Hope is real. I don't have to give in to that nothing good is ever going to happen again. God will change the circumstances in your life. Joseph is sold into slavery. He does not die a slave. God brings new days. We can be people who have hope. But the second thing is not just that our circumstances in our world around us changes, and this is what I want us to spend some time thinking about today, but that part of why we can have hope in the midst of suffering is that God doesn't just change the world around us, but it is actually in our struggles that we ourselves are changed. That the way God changes our hearts and our minds and our lives is not by making New Year's resolutions. But as counselor and author Walter Tobrish writes, it is in pain that there is growth. He says, without pain, there is no growth. Because human beings don't grow without pain. And so not only is God going to be, and can we have hope in the midst of difficulty because we say, oh, well, God's going to change this out here, which God will do, but that somehow God also works in our minds and our hearts through pain so that you and I become different. Because here's the thing about the story, guys. Joseph is like many of us, like most of us, like all of us are in our default mode. At the beginning of his story, he is a self-centered, egotistical, I see the world the way I see it and I want to be affirmed in who I am kind of person. And what happens is at the end of his story, he is not that anymore. He is kind, he is mature, he is thinking about other people, he is gracious, he is forgiving, and he is a leader in other people standing up for the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed. Joseph is different at the end of his story. It's not just that God takes slavery and says, oh, I'm going to take slavery away from you, which he does, but Joseph actually changes, which you and I can't do by ourselves. The only way you and I change is God changes us. And that is good news. That is good news because it's how we are changed. Now, when we say that, what that means is that you and I have the ability in times of suffering to ask a question, and it's an important question. And the question that we can ask in times of suffering is that we can look at the hard things going on in our life or with our friends or our school or our work or in our families or in our nation or in our world, and we can ask the question that is one of the most important questions you will ever learn to ask, and it's this. Lord, what do you want me to learn? What do you want me to learn? Most of the time when people are fighting, they are experts on who's to blame. 
Our politicians are experts on telling you who's to blame, and it never starts with themselves. Our leaders in our world today are experts at telling you what's wrong with your life and who's to blame for it, and it never starts with themselves. That's the human condition. The mature response is to look at places of difficulty and to say, Lord, what do you want me to learn? How do you want to shape my life and mold my life? Now, when I say that, there might be a part of some of you that's going, I hate that question. Like, I'm going through really hard times, and you want me to ask, what do you want me to learn? That's not right. I'm too angry to ask that. I'm too lost to ask that. And I get that feeling. And so what I want to do is I want to be really clear when we say, Lord, what do you want me to learn? What are we saying in that, and what are we not saying in that? Okay? One of the things we're not saying, and I want you to listen to this because this is really important if you're going to hear this. One of the things we're not saying is when we say, Lord, what do you want me to learn? It doesn't mean that God is causing the pain in your life. And that's important because I have had numerous conversations with people over the years who essentially when things are going wrong or when things are hard, they say, is God punishing me for something? And that's a natural question to ask. God doesn't punish us like that. God isn't punishing Joseph. Joseph is a self-centered, egotistical little guy when we first meet him. But God's not punishing him for that. This evil that happens to him, it happens through his brothers and through their act. God redeems it, and Joseph is changed through it. But God, number one, for your suffering, God is not authoring that. Second thing that it's really important you hear that we're not saying when we ask the question, what do you want me to learn, is we're also not saying that by asking that question, it means that whatever's happened is your fault. And it can sometimes feel like that, right? That if you say, well, what do you want me to learn, that means that it feels like it's my fault. Oh, well, it wasn't my fault. Why do I have to ask how I need to change? They're the one that did it. Why am I supposed to ask that question? It wasn't my fault that it happened. Well, you don't have to ask, to asking the question, what do you want me to learn, is not the same thing as saying, Lord, is it, it's my fault that this happened. And that's important as well. Let me give you an example of what I mean. A family that I was emailing with this week has a child that's going through a very difficult health situation, a very difficult health situation. And one of the things they were writing about was they were saying that in the midst of the sadness and of the despair and of the questions and of the confusion and of the uncertain future, they said, we're also seeing things in this. We're seeing that God is really showering some miracles into our life. We're seeing that love is real and that the kindness of people is real. We're seeing the value of friendship and community. We are seeing people pour into our lives in ways and the importance of no matter where our life goes of having community and real friends that will ask us real questions because sometimes when people are suffering, we don't know what to say to them, right? And it's like some people will look at you and and when things are hard and they don't ask about it because like, I don't want to make it worse. Well, when someone's child is suffering and ill, you don't have the power to make it worse. Your questions aren't going to make it worse. It gives them a chance to be real when you acknowledge that. This family is learning and being shaped in all different kinds of ways. They are not going to be different at the end of this journey than they were where they started. And not only is God, I believe, going to change the circumstances and bring healing and wholeness to their daughter and to that family, but I also believe that they are going to be better at the end of this journey than they were when they started. That hope isn't just that God changes the circumstances in our life, but it is in pain that we can have hope because it is how God changes us as well. Without pain, there is no growth, and I don't care what your New Year's resolution was. Without pain, there is no growth. This is your story of how your life will change over time and look different in life of people that you love. And this is my story, and it's Joseph's story. 
I still remember to this day, the first time as a Christian, someone looked at me and asked the question, Thomas, what do you need to learn in this? And it was at the year end of one of the hardest years, probably the hardest year of my life. It took place, um, well, and, and to explain this to you, I, I need you to know that if you've ever like known anything or piece some stories together from sermons I've told or looked at, you know, a bio on a website or something, you may have noticed that I, before coming to Covenant, have worked in three different churches before coming here. The first church you have heard a lot about. The first church was the church where I did college ministry as a seminary student, and Beth worked on staff there, and we were both associate pastors there and worked there for a number of years. We saw amazing things happen. We saw an explosion of college students at a mainline traditional church where people were like, well, college ministry doesn't happen there anymore. We saw the Lord change students' lives and the church's life and the ministry blew up and it was just this amazing thing. And I've told you stories uh, and sermon illustrations about that day working at North Avenue Presbyterian Church in Atlanta and the fruit we saw and the things we learned and the stuff that happened. It was awesome. That was the first church I worked at. The third church I worked at before coming here was the church that we started in Atlanta before coming here. We started in our home with seven people called Kairos Church. And we saw this amazing thing of this ministry that grew and this church that today is still flourishing in Atlanta and started in our home and it was the scariest thing we've ever done. Um, But it happened and it worked and the Lord blessed it and all this stuff happened. You heard stories about that. You'll hear about it again. It was amazing. It was awesome. It was wonderful to be a part of. But the second church, you've never heard me talk about. You've never, ever heard me give a sermon illustration. You've never heard me tell a joke about it. You've never heard me try to tie a little ribbon about it because I don't talk about it. And that was the year that we spent at the First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, Illinois. The year we spent in Evanston, Illinois was the hardest year of my life. What happened is, is that as I was doing college ministry, and Beth and I were both in ministry at North Avenue, the ministry blew up, and I got to speak in different places and all these different things around the country, and it was very, very cool. All of a sudden, I got a call at age 28 from First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, Illinois, that was looking for a new pastor. And what they were looking for was what they called a co-pastor. Now, if you've never been in a church before, here's how a co-pastor works. It's not, it's not having one senior pastor, because Lord knows that's, there's not enough of a good thing. They had two that they called co-pastors, okay? And if you've never been in a church before, when I describe this system to you, your leadership system, systemic alarm bell should be just flashing, okay? Because not only were we, I going to be one of two co-pastors of this church, but I was going to be co-pastoring with the guy who had been the senior pastor there for the past 24 years. So he was still going to be there and still work, and for 24 years he had been the boss, but he's just going to stay there and just kind of not be the boss anymore, because that's a good idea. And I came in at 28, and it was a transition thing that we'd do this for a while, and then I would take over as the senior pastor of this church. And I still remember when they flew us up to Chicago. They flew Beth and I up to Chicago. And we went in. This one, it's like two blocks from Northwestern University. It's a couple of blocks from Lake Michigan. It's in this amazing part of Chicago. And we walked in, and, and, and the sanctuary there is one of the most beautiful sanctuaries I've ever been in. And Beth looked at me. The search committee's all around. And she looked at me, and she's like, they're thinking about putting you in charge of this place? <laughs> And I'm like, I know, I don't really know what to do with this. But I was 28, and they were talking to me about this stuff, and it was awesome. And Beth was pregnant with another, uh, with our second child, and, and they paid more than we ever thought we would make. And there's all this stuff, and you're like, oh, well, I can't believe this. Now, I had friends. 
People I was very close to me who knew about the system were going, Thomas, you don't want to do this. There's something going on to make them do this system. I had people who knew the church really well, people I was close to who knew people in the church going, Thomas, you don't want to do this. They aren't telling you everything that's going on. This is a very divided congregation over what's happening. But see, friends, for years I had had people telling me, you're working in a college ministry in a church that can't do that anymore. These things. I was the guy that could do things at age 28 that other people couldn't do. And so I said yes. And I accepted the job. We moved to Evanston, Illinois. One month in, Beth is looking at me going, I think we're in trouble. This is, this is poisonous. This is a disaster. And what happened was, even though when I got there, the church immediately started growing. Worship attendance going up, giving was going up. People were like, oh, this is okay. But what happened is, behind the scenes, it was horrible. It was horrible because you had a congregation that was divided. You had some of the people there that felt like this was a subtle way of trying to push out the old pastor. And they didn't like me and they didn't like my family from the day we showed up because they didn't want us there. There were other people that wanted the old pastor gone who kind of put us on a pedestal that we have no business being on, not because of us, but because we were going to push him out. And then you added a certain segment of people that just didn't care and were uninterested in all the politics of it all. And it was poisonous behind the scenes. It was poisonous in the system. Three months into being there, I called one of my best friends from Atlanta and said, I've made a horrible mistake with my pregnant wife and my 18-month-old daughter, and I don't know what to do. And a couple months after Hannah was born, six months in, I looked at Beth and said, we got to get out of here. This is killing us. This is killing us. And in less than a year, I quit. I quit. And there's no but coming. I just quit. And I went back to Atlanta because I had very few options of what to do. To start a church in our home. And I went back ashamed, and I went back embarrassed, and I went back as a failure. The Lord redeems broken situations, amen? amen. The Lord redeemed that one. I'm not in Evanston, Illinois anymore. Circumstances change. And in January, not being in Evanston, Illinois is a great time not to be there. <laughs> Second, the guy I was pastoring with who had to leave when I left, I had lunch with him a few years later, and he looked at me and said, Thomas, I've never, ever been happier in ministry than what I'm doing now. He started doing interim work in churches in transition. That just This church has had an interim pastor like Paul Parsons who came in, and he did uh, an amazing job of being an inner pastor. And he said, I've not, I've, I didn't know how bad it was there until we left. And the third thing is First Presbyterian Church is thriving today and is a good church. God redeems broken situations. And God did that for me and God will do that for you. And God did that for Joseph. The situation has changed. But here's the other part. We change too. Because I am not the same person I was at age 28. I'm not perfect. But that experience changed. You're not going to hear stories about it like you do the other churches, but you want to know the church that formed and shaped me vocationally more than any other? This is my year as a failure at First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. 
And so I want you today to know that it would be wonderful if the message of the gospel was you just follow enough rules and everything's going to be great and okay. And hard times will never come. And I'd be lying to you if I said that. Joseph's life was turned upside down and he didn't deserve it. Your lives have felt that way from time to time. Our world feels that way from time to time. I feel that way from time to time. But a new day dawns. Things will change. But the glorious good news of God is that you will change as well. I had the fortune of having somebody who when I got back to Atlanta licking my wounds and embarrassed at the failure that my ministry was. Who I was sitting in his living room and he looked at me and I said, and they, they changed the transition time of this and they lied to me about this and they deceived me about this and there was divisions about this and he was like, I hear you, I hear you, I hear you. It's awful, I hear you. But then he looked at me and said, Thomas, let me ask you a question. What do you think you need to learn in all of this? I said, excuse me, they changed this on the, they deceived me on this, and I, I, don't know if, I don't know if you've heard that part. I don't know if I stuttered or if I hesitated on that. They did all this stuff. He goes, I hear you. He goes, but here's the thing. Those of us who knew that church told you that was going to happen before you went, and you went. So what do you think you need to learn? And in that conversation and in several subsequently with a small group, I had to learn a lot of hard things about myself. I had to learn how egotistical I can be. I had to learn about how much of my identity I put in my work and my success in that and how I was willing to sell my marriage and my children short in order to pursue that. I had to realize how much I can deceive myself on my own to believing what I want to believe if I'm not processing decisions in community with people. When I tell you how important small groups are, and I had someone a few weeks ago who was like, man, you beat that drum a lot. You, you are absolutely right, I do. Not because I read it in a book somewhere, but because I know my amazing capacity to deceive myself if I don't make decisions in community. And the Bible says it. But I don't do it because the Bible says it. I do it because I have had to walk through the pain of doing it in a different way. And it shapes and forms you more than anything else. And so, friends, this message and this news is good. It's hard. But it's good. God will change your circumstances and God will change you through pain and suffering and difficulty. And you'll never be the same again. Hallelujah. And amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that in our pain and in our brokenness, in our own lives, in our world, our nation, in our families, in our failure, and in our heartache, we would be a people who grieve and suffer and mourn, but we do so with hope. Hope that a new day will dawn, that circumstances will change, but hope that we can also learn and be changed ourselves as we see with Joseph. Do this hard and great work in our life that cannot be done any other way. Teach us what we need to learn this day and this week and always. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.